it is now the time in the service to open your Bible. I trust you brought a Bible because that is our only source of authority. Um, I would remind you that if you are opening your Bible right now, um, you are doing something that over a billion people on the planet do not have the freedom to do. It is a privilege to be able to open the Bible, which leaves me astonished that billions of people have the freedom to open the Bible, but have no desire to do so. What a privilege it is to open our Bibles. We've been marching verse by verse through the book of 2 Timothy. I didn't tell you where to open your Bible. Open your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where you should be finding your place. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we've kind of hit the brakes and slowed way down on a couple of verses of Scripture that are foundational to everything that we believe about God, about ourselves, about Christ, about heaven, about hell, and about salvation. The only reason we know anything about any of those topics is because we have the freedom to open our Bibles. Let me ask you a question. Be honest. Do you believe the Bible? Raise your hand if you believe the Bible. I would ask you, what do you believe about the Bible? Now, if you believe the Bible, you would be able to make this statement. So I want to, I'm going to read this statement, and then we're all going to recite it together. If you say you believe the Bible, what you're saying is this. I believe the Bible. It is the Word of God. Every word of God is true. Now, let me just say before we read the rest of it. A lot of people have fought a battle for the first three lines of this particular statement. I remember when I was first introduced to the Bible as a teenager, there was a battle going on for the inspiration and the, uh, and the uh, inerrancy of the Bible. That was the big battle that was raging. Churches and Christians were drifting away from the inspiration of the Bible, and they were saying, well, the Bible contains the Word of God, but the Bible is not exactly the Word of God because it was written by men. Men are fallible, and you can't expect fallible men to accurately record the words of God. And there was this big debate back when I was first introduced to the Bible. Can I just tell you that debate is basically over. You either believe it or you don't. And if you've believed the first half of this, it's because somebody fought a battle so that you could believe that. That is not the issue I'm concerned with today. What I'm concerned with is the second half of this statement, which says, if what the Bible teaches is different than my belief, my actions, and my attitude, I will change by the power of God's Spirit. You see, the first three statements are about what you believe about the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible. I trust you believe that. Today, we're going to talk about the authority of the Bible. And you can say you believe the Bible all day long, but if when you see something in the Bible that is different than your action, your attitude, or your belief, if you don't change, you don't believe the Bible. You may believe in the inspiration of the Bible, you may believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, but you don't believe in the authority of the Bible 
over your life. So today is going to be a test to see whether or not you really believe in the authority of the Bible. Let's read the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now, if you're new to the Bible, this would be a great place for you to memorize a couple of passages because everything we believe about the Bible is contained in these two verses. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God. Your translation may say inspired. It means to be God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. Teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So that, verse 17, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So, we've been slowing down and pumping the brakes here and just really drilling down to every word of this this passage of Scripture. And if you were paying attention a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, the necessity of the Bible. And we read here in, in, in verse 15, it says that uh, the Scriptures were given to us, the sacred writings were able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so what we say is we believe in the necessity of the Bible. I believe the Bible is essential for a saving knowledge of God and living life pleasing to God. Do you believe in the necessity of the Bible? A lot of people say, well, I can just uh, stand in a, in a, a deer stand or on top of a mountain experiencing God. Well, yeah, you can experience the general revelation of God. God speaks through those things. But in order to be saved, you have to be acquainted with the sacred writings that tell us that without Christ, we are condemned in our sin and will experience eternity without hell. We learn that in the pages of the sacred writings. We believe in the necessity of the Bible. Secondly, we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. And that's what we saw in these two words, God breathed. When we say we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, what we're saying is, I believe the Bible is God breathed word of God. Did Mitchell do an okay job last night, last week when he's here? Did, did, did he introduce to you this concept of inspiration and, and the idea of being God-breathed? Um, the, uh, the idea is that in order for words to be formed, my words right now are not just happening because my mouth is moving, but because there's air flowing through my lungs and it's coming out of my mouth. That's what we mean when we say God breathed out Scripture, the words of the, of the Bible were God breathed. The, the interesting word there behind the words God breathed is actually one word in the Greek, the original language, and the, the word is theonoustos. If you want to impress your neighbor, just turn to them and say theonoustos. I, I feel pretty smart saying that, the, theonoustos. Um, you, you say, I don't know what that means. The, the word noustos actually is where we get our word uh, breathed from or air or wind. Um, uh, my dad was an auto mechanic all of his life, and so when he died, I inherited his pneumatic power tools. Neustos, pneumatic, air flows and powers those tools. Air flows through 
the mouth of God and empowers the Word of God. So when we say we believe in the inspiration of the Bible, not inspired like a bad Taylor Swift song was inspired, okay? Inspired like God spoke and the men <laughs> wrote it down accurately. So we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. We believe in the necessity of the Bible. Today, we're going to talk about whether or not we believe in the authority of the Bible. So let's give it a definition. If you believe in the authority of the Bible, what you're saying is, I believe the Bible has the authority to define what I believe and to determine how I behave. Now that's a different level of belief right there. And let me tell you, if you believe in the authority of the Bible, this is going to distinguish you from those who do not believe the Bible. You are going to be like a fish out of water in this world. You're going to be swimming upstream. You're going to face opposition because even though there was a time in our culture in America where if you didn't like actually believe in the authority of the Bible, you at least respected people that believed in the authority of the Bible. Today, that has all changed. If you believe in the authority of the Bible, you will be labeled a hateful bigot. You will be seen as someone who is a threat to peace in the world. That's how much the world has changed. And so this is a dividing line for you. You can come to church, you can carry a Bible, you can believe in the inspiration of the Bible, but if you put your life under the authority of the Bible, it's going to put you at odds with people in the world. Do you allow the Bible to define what you believe about gender and sexuality? Do you allow the Bible to define what you believe about finances, about living under the authority of your parents? Do you allow the Bible to determine how you behave Certain things I cannot do because I believe the Bible. Certain things I must do because I believe the Bible. This is a dividing line for everyone here to find out whether or not you really believe the Bible. Let's talk about the authority of the Bible. Do you understand that everything in creation exists because of the authoritative spoken word of God? You exist because God spoke you into existence. The world exists because God spoke it into existence. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Do you see the God-breathed nature of creation? Verse 8 says, all, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Everything in creation moves in response to the authoritative word of God. As a matter of fact, the only thing in creation that is stubborn enough to challenge the authority of God's word is the human heart. If all of the planets and all of the galaxies and all of the solar systems move at the direction of God's word, 
Who are we not to? Do you believe in the authority of God's Word? The authority of the Bible was challenged in the opening pages of history. In Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced to the first man and the first woman who were told by the authority of God's Word, you can eat of all of the trees, there's just this one. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there was this serpent, the devil in serpent form, who came along and suggested that they did not have to move in response to the authority of God's word. The serpent said, has God really said? And he cast doubt upon the authority of God's word. Ever since then, the authority of the Bible has been challenged by every competing voice. How many of you have been doing the 100 days Bible reading? How many of you got to, you're like in uh, Matthew, what, 16, 17 today, something like that? So have you noticed, have you been paying attention to the number of references to the authority of God's word just in this first week of reading? In Matthew chapter one, before we get out of the Christmas story, we found out that all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. And we get to chapter four, Jesus is in the wilderness and he's facing the temptation of the devil and the devil's coming along just like he did to Adam. And now he's talking to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he's saying, has God really said it? Jesus says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word alone of God. God, Jesus elevates the authority of God's word. It's the way that you and I do battle with those doubts today. Matthew chapter 7, we're introduced to um, these Pharisees who come against uh, Jesus and they're questioning the authority and they're misinterpreting the Old Testament. And Jesus gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, three chapters of a sermon on Jesus. He gets to the end of it and he sums it up and says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on a rock. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. And so the authority of God's word is elevated on every page. John Frame is a is a theologian, and uh, in his systematic theology, he talked about the authority of God's word this way. God's word is not only meaningful, not some devotional, inspirational thought to get you started in your day. God's word is not only meaningful, but authoritative. That is to say, it imposes on people an obligation to respond in an appropriate way. That is the proper definition of authority. An authoritative word is one that imposes obligations on those who hear. And the word of God imposes absolute obligations on us. The exact nature of the obligation depends on the context of the command. There's all sorts of divine utterances in a wide variety of topics. Worship, Sabbath, family, marriage, faith, and so on. There are different kinds of speech as well, commands, assertions, promises, and the like. When God commands, we are to obey. When he asserts, 
we are to believe him. When he promises, we are to embrace and trust these promises. Thus, we respond to the sheer authority of God's word. Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe the authority of the Bible? The test is whether or not you respond to the obligation the authoritative word of God puts on our lives. A lot of people say they believe the Bible. They don't believe the Bible because they don't change in response to it. Now, when you approach the Bible, you should expect to experience four things. They're listed for us here in verse 16. Every time you go to the Bible, every time you read the Bible, you should expect it to teach you, reprove you, correct you, and train you in righteousness. Now, by the way, nobody gets to choose whether or not you're taught, reproved, corrected, or trained. Somebody's going to do that. You are going to give authority to someone to teach you. You say, not me. Yeah, you're going you're to teach yourself. You're going to correct yourself. You're going to approve yourself. So you've made yourself the absolute authority in your life. Or by default, you're going to let the loudest voice or the most influential voice or the richest voice or the most powerful voice or the most threatening voice to define what you believe and determine how you behave. For Christians, what we're saying is we're going to let the Bible be the loudest, most powerful, most authoritative voice in our life so that it defines what we believe and determines how we behave. We're going to give the Bible the authority, the right to teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us in righteousness. So, let's talk about the Bible and how it teaches us. The Bible teaches us. What does this word mean? The word means, uh, it means teaching. It means, it means doctrine. It, it means the Bible teaches us what we believe about God, man, angels, demons, heaven, hell, creation, judgment, sin, salvation, sanctification, the end times. It teaches us practically the responsibilities and roles of a husband, of a wife, of a mom, of a dad, of a child, a brother, a sister, a church member, a pastor. It teaches us about relationships and singleness and sexuality. It teaches us about parenting. It teaches us about money. It teaches us about business. It teaches about time management. It teaches us about how to lead well in a variety of subjects. What you believe about the Bible determines how you approach the Bible. Now, there's two competing ways that we can approach the Bible. One will land you in trouble. We can approach the Bible as if the Bible was written about me. You say, man, I'm interested in all those topics. I, I would take a class on leadership. I would take a, a biblical class on marriage. Now listen, be very careful if you do that. Because if you approach the Bible as if it was written about you, you'll approach the Bible as if it's only filled with good advice. You'll approach the Bible and view it kind of like an encyclopedia, topical index, and I can just flip open to a few pages and find the, the verses on marriage or money, and, and I can learn a few things. If you do that, you'll be frustrated with the Bible because you'll misunderstand the Bible's not actually written about you. Now, the Bible's written for you, but the Bible's not written about you. The Bible was written thousands of years ago to a people that didn't even speak the language that you speak. They didn't live in your culture. Different customs and, and challenges and things that we have that they didn't have. And so it was written to a people. We can read about those people 
And then what is written about them can help us understand how we're to live. Here's the better way to understand and approach the Bible. Approach the Bible as if it was written about Jesus. The Bible was written about Jesus. If you approach the Bible if it was written about Jesus, you will approach the Bible as if it's filled not with good advice, but good news. You'll approach the Bible as if it was a story of redemptive history about a real God who entered a real world and, and, and entered real pain and encountered people with, with lots of junk going on and transformed their thinking and introduced to us a real savior that could save us from real sin and help us to overcome the world. So understand when you approach the Bible, it's not a topical index. It's not an encyclopedia. You're reading history. How God worked throughout redemptive history in the past helps us understand his will and ways for us today. Here's a question that has plagued church history. Who actually gets to decide what the Bible teaches on all those subjects? Have you noticed there's differing interpretations of some of these verses? And like that sometimes puts us in different denominations. It puts us in, in different categories. You got Protestant, we're a Protestant church. You got Roman Catholic church. And, and throughout church history, there's been this debate. Um, can you pick up the Bible read it for yourself and understand it and apply it to your life? Or do you need the church or somebody in the church, a pastor or a priest to tell you what it says? Because you, you're you, like, you couldn't figure that out for yourself. The question has been, um, who gets to decide? Does the church have authority over the Bible or does the Bible have the authority over the church? Does the church have the authority to correct the Bible or does the Bible have the authority to correct the church? This is what distinguishes us from the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church catechism says this, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scripture alone. I'm reading from the Catholic, the Roman Catholic catechism. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. The task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church. That is, to the pope and the bishops in communion with him. Catholic theologian Michael Shamus says this, the church is not the product of the scriptures. It is the other way around. Scripture is the product of the church. We don't believe that. We believe that the Bible is given to us as authoritative over the church. We don't believe the church created the Bible. We believe the Bible created the church. We don't believe the Bible 
We don't believe the church is the sole interpreter of the Bible. We believe the Bible interprets the church. We don't believe that an elite group of church fathers hold exclusive rights to understand and interpret and apply the Bible. We believe that every person who reads the Bible in its literal, historical, grammatical context can understand it, can be transformed by it, and obey it. We don't believe the church has authority to add or change the Bible doctrines. We believe the Bible has the authority to change us. That's what distinguishes us from other groups. And so do you really believe the Bible? Do you elevate tradition and scripture at an equal level? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 15, yesterday's reading. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the traditions of men. It's an error to elevate our traditions to the level of authoritative Scripture. William Tyndale was a man who believed the Bible could teach people if they only could read it in their own language. Here's a little church history lesson for you. From the year 500 or so, 5th century, 500 years after Christ, until the year 1519, for a thousand years, the only copies of God's Word that were available were in Latin. The problem was, nobody could read Latin. And even if they could, there weren't printing presses. Nobody owned copies of their own Bibles, you had to go to the church, they kept them locked up in a vault, and then the church would tell you what they read and how to interpret the Bible. William Tyndale believed that if people could just read the Bible in their own language, that God could speak to them too. And again, the problem was that it was illegal to be caught reading a Bible in your own language. Punishable by death. So in 1516, William Tyndale in London translated the Bible into the first English translation. About that time in God's providence, a man named Gutenberg invented the printing press. And copies of the English Bible began to be produced and distributed throughout the world. William Tyndale, for translating the Bible in the language of the people, was burned at the stake because he was caught reading the Bible. His famous last words were these, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spares my life before many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know the scripture more than you. That was his prayer. He ended that prayer by saying this, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. 75 years later, the Lord answered that prayer. In the year 1611, the King of England authorized the first English translation of the Bible that preserved about 90% of William Tyndale's translation. The King's name? was James, thus the King James authorized Bible. 
several years ago, somebody gave me a page from the first edition 1611 uh, King James Bible. It's very hard to read. I think it's in English, but it's hard to read. The font is a little weird here. And by the way, this was a, a copy of a page from Exodus chapter 33, which was the first sermon that I preached on the day that we launched the church. This is one of my most valued possessions. Do not touch my copy of <laughs> Exodus 33 in the original 1611 King James Bible here. And, and, and since then, you understand it, translations. It, it, here's two options. The Bible was not written in English. The Bible was not written in Latin. It was written in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And so if you want to read the Bible, you've got two options. You can all learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic to read the original, uh, you know, language, or you can rely upon a faithful translation, an English translation, so that we can read it together. So, to, we, I like to read from the English Standard Version. There's a lot of great versions out there. We like the English Standard so that the Bible can teach us the things that we need to know about God and ourselves and all those different copies. So, understand this, the Bible teaches us. Not only does the Bible teach us, the Bible reproves us. This is where it gets a little uncomfortable. The Bible reproves us. You should expect to experience some pain when you read the Bible. Now, someone has said these four things. Teaching the Bible shows us the path. Here's the path you need to walk on. Reproof shows us where we've gotten off the path. It's like I read something in the Bible, it's like, I'm not living like that at all. And God reproves us by his Holy Spirit conviction. He says, you're wrong. You need to straighten this thing out. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing. Does that sound fun to you? When somebody wants to pierce you, anybody, ladies, get your ears pierced? That, was that fun? Like, no, it pierced, it hurt. There was a little bleeding involved. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, the Bible pierces us not just at our behavioral level. The Bible pierces us and cuts us at the heart level. The Bible's like a sword. It's like a scalpel so that when you read it, it'll cut you so that God can reach in by his spirit into your heart and do some heart surgery, pull out cancer, pull out things that are actually destroying you, sew you back up and let you heal. That's what the word of God should do every time you encounter God's word. Every time we encounter God's word, it calls for a response of repentance and faith. Quite frankly, that's the reason why many of you don't read the Bible. It hurts. I don't want to face that. It, it's painful. It stings. And yet, it's the very thing that, that we need most. Last week, I was doing some devotion time in, in the book of James, chapter 3, and I read this verse, verse 1. It says, not many of you should become teachers. I'm like, huh, I, I think I might be one of those. Why, why, shouldn't we, why shouldn't many of you be teachers? He says, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Well, why didn't they tell me before I signed up to be a teacher? Like, really? I'm not, I, I'm not really into, like, greater, stricter judgment. I would just kind of like a low-level judgment, right? But because I'm a teacher, occupational hazard of the pastor-preacher dude... I get judged with a greater strictness. The passage goes on in verse 14. It says, but 
If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Did you know that teachers can actually be earthly, unspiritual, and demonic? And we're going to get judged with a greater judgment? I'm like, well, I don't like the direction this is going. I keep reading. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. I'm like, Lord, I don't want there to be disorder in the church. I don't want there to be any vile practice in the church. And the Holy Spirit began to convict me that I've had jealousy, selfish ambition, and it's spilled over into some things that I've said. and I've negatively impacted my wife and my family and my staff and my church. And here's some of the things that I wrote in my journal. I confess that my words and my actions have been rooted in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. I confess that I've not had a gentle tone with my wife, children, and our staff. I know that I need to change and I want God to change me at a heart level. I confess that my lack of gentleness with others has created disorder for which I am responsible. I take responsibility for the damage to friendships, staff, and my wife. I've sought the Lord's forgiveness. I've had to seek the forgiveness of my family, our elders, and my staff. And I would even come before you today and seek your forgiveness. As a teacher, I'm judged with greater judgment. And, and I know that I've stumbled in many ways. That's what the second verse says. And, and, and that's the kind of cutting and piercing that happens when you faithfully open the Bible. And that is so hard to do because most often I open the Bible and I think about your bitter envy and your jealousy and the ways you've cut me and how you need to come and confess to me. And yet, if we'll understand the purpose of God's word is to teach me and to reprove me, and then thirdly, to correct me, it changes the way you read the Bible. So the Bible teaches us, here's the path. It corrects us. You've gotten, it, it reproves us. Here's how you've gotten off the path. And it corrects us, here's how you get back on the path. It doesn't just leave you out there in the ditch. It instructs you. It wants, it wants to do some repair. It wants to make you new. This word means um, to restore something to its original condition. The Bible makes us new. The Bible doesn't just convicts us, it fixes us. It points out error, but then it, it pulls us back in. Again, James chapter one says this. It says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. So he's using a word picture here. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. That's bad. And the one who looks into the perfect law, the word of God, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Question, how many of you this morning, before you came to church, looked in a mirror? Raise your hand. Do you remember 
what you look like when you saw yourself in a mirror. Question, did it motivate you? I would venture to say there were thousands of dollars and hundreds of manpower hours that went into effect to get you into shape so you could show your face to someone else in a way that was different than what it looked like when you first saw it in a mirror. You know what the Bible is? It's a mirror. And you open it up in the morning, you're like, ooh, ooh, oh, that, I am ugly. And then we close the Bible and we just walk out and we stay ugly. That's what this verse is talking about. It's like, no, it should motivate you. It should correct you. Get to work, change, repent, restore, and get to a better place. And then finally, the Bible doesn't just correct us. It trains us in righteousness. So, teaches us the path, reproves us when we get off the path, it corrects us, showing us how to get back on the path, and then it trains us how to stay on the path. This word training here is interesting. It comes from the word pedia. It's where we get our word pediatrician from. It talks about how you, you train a child. There are certain things that a child needs to learn how to do. Here's how you tie your shoe. Here's how you walk. Here's how you eat. Here's how you speak with manners. And that's what the Bible does. It trains us how to live right. It does two things. It trains us how to get right with God, and it trains us how to live right in obedience to God. Please hear me. The, to disobey or disbelieve the Bible is to disbelieve and disobey God in every area of your life. The Bible makes a claim on things that we want to have control over. And, and the, the tipping point in our culture right now is all about sexuality. The question is this, will you allow the Bible to speak authoritatively into your life about your sexuality? The Bible teaches us, it trains us that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage is sin. For you to engage in sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage is sinful. The Bible corrects us. It reproves us. It pulls us back on the path. And whether or not you believe the Bible could come down to whether or not you obey what the Bible teaches regarding your gender and your sexuality and family and marriage, the, 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 the way that we make decisions and live our lives in those ways. Whether you believe the Bible or not, please understand, you and I will be judged by what is written in the Bible. Not by what's popular, not by what you believe. We will be judged based on how we responded to what is written in the Bible. Now, I want to teach you one more thing. The purpose of the Bible. If you, you can believe all that and still get it wrong. The purpose of the Bible. Here's what I believe. I believe the Bible is primarily about Jesus, who obeyed the Bible to save and transform those who have rebelled against the authority of the Bible. One of the greatest mistakes that we can make is coming to the Bible and leaving with behavior modification. 
the Bible was not written primarily to tell you what to do. The Bible was written primarily to tell you what you have failed to do. And the Bible was written primarily to tell you what Jesus did for you. That's the purpose of the Bible. It's not to make you into a better person. It's not to create behavior modification. It's not to make you morally a better person. Without understanding the purpose of the Bible, you will experience two devastating consequences. First, the Bible will crush you under the weight of its authority. The commands of the Bible, the requirements of the Bible, the standards of the Bible, the laws of the Bible, they're impossible to obey. And if you try to, in your own power, it will crush you under its authority. You'll exhaust yourself trying to obey it in an effort to avoid God's judgment. You will be buried under guilt and shame because you're going to ultimately fail to obey its commands. You'll develop an inferiority complex before others, and then this is what will happen. You won't be able to live with the guilt and the shame, so you'll start to reinterpret what you believe about the Bible. Well, I know, I know it says that, but it really doesn't mean that. And that word really doesn't mean that. And that, that was written so long ago. I mean, that was in that culture, and that's not in our culture anymore. And you start to sway from not only the authority, but the inspiration of the Bible. God, and it's full of error. And you'll end up running, screaming from the Bible and anyone who represents its authority in your life. And that's why so many people don't go to church anymore. That's why people don't read the Bible. It's why people aren't here today. It's because... It's crushed them. By the way, don't use the Bible that way. That's not the purpose of the Bible. Here's the second possibility. Not only will the Bible crush you under the weight of its authority, the other option, the other extreme is this. It will inflate you with self-righteous obedience to its authority. If you approach the Bible that way, you'll congratulate yourself for how much of the Bible you know and obey. Or you'll be filled with pride and self-righteousness. That's what happened to the Pharisees. You'll you'll develop a critical, fault-finding, legalistic, pharisaical attitude and condemn anyone who isn't as obedient to the Bible as you are. Listen, when Jesus encountered the, the Pharisees, he didn't rebuke them because they didn't believe in the authority of the Bible. He rebuked them because they didn't allow the Bible to penetrate to the heart, Jesus rebuked them because they didn't understand the purpose of the Bible. And if you do that, you'll fill your mind with the Bible, but it will never change your heart. Both of those approaches will condemn you, both of them will make you self-absorbed, and both of them will leave you without hope. So what's the option? If we understand the purpose of the Bible, this is what we'll do. We'll allow the Bible to teach us, reprove us, correct us and train us in righteousness so that we respond with humility and we search for grace and we come to the Lord for salvation because we know we haven't lived according to the Bible. Now listen, I said earlier, you can't obey the Bible. You actually can. You can obey the Bible when you are filled with the Spirit of God, if you are in union with Christ, you're abiding in Christ, the Spirit of God, Jesus within you, will live out the Bible if you would simply get out of the way 
and give him the rightful place of authority and lordship in your life. Do you obey the Bible? Justin, put up that original slide there, that one that I said that we were all gonna say. I want you to stand with me right now. Everybody stand up. I want us to say this together and I trust it's true. Don't say it if you don't believe it, but maybe after we've been encountered with the Bible, we could actually believe the Bible. Do you believe it? Let's say it together. We say it with me. I believe the Bible. It is the word of God. Every word of God is true. Here's the hard part. Now, careful. Are you ready for this? All right. Your wife is going to hear you say this. Your children are going to hear you say this. You really believe the Bible? If what the Bible teaches is different from my belief, my action, my attitude, I will change by the power of God's Spirit. I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. Now listen, this may be your first encounter with even thinking of such thoughts. There's only one command God wants you to obey this morning. Repent and believe. If you read the first few chapters of Matthew in those hundred days, you noticed both John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself began their sermons with this statement. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. A kingdom represents authority. A king represents authority. Jesus was announcing he's king. It's his word that we respond to. And listen, before you can obey the Bible, you must be inhabited with the author of the Bible, the hero of the Bible. The word of God cuts us. It convicts us of sin. It reproves us. Every time the Bible reproves us, the only appropriate response is to respond in repentance and faith. I believe. And remember, the purpose of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. It's to convince us that we have failed in so many ways to believe and to live under the authority of God's word. This morning, would you come to the spoken word of God and repent? Put yourself under his authority. If you've never done that, or maybe you've thought you've done that, but the evidence of your life is that you look into the mirror all the time, you never change then you need to be saved. You, you need to come to Christ, repent of sin, put, put yourself under his authority for the very first time. That's what makes you a Christian. And then he'll train you in righteousness. Before you can live right, you have to get right. At the end of the service, there'll be pastors and friends down here to pray with you. Why don't you courageously come to one of those pastors and say, today, I'm putting myself under the authority of Jesus and his word. You can also head back to the cross as you leave today. You'll see it in the lobby area. We have to make a decision about what we believe and who we allow to define what we believe and determine how we're to behave. We do that today in response to his word. For all of you guys, would you come 
afresh and anew. Humbly submit to God's word in whatever area he would convict you of. Father, today, we come as those that have lived under our own authority. We've come as those that have allowed other voices to speak more authoritatively in our lives. And God, we repent. I pray that our church, my life, my family would always be governed by what you say. Not what I think, not what's culturally acceptable, not what's politically popular, but what you have said. Thank you that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Continue to train us to do the right thing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.